0: Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Paris attacks were the canary in the coal mine, and we'd better listen. Welcome to the Terrorist therapist show. I'm Dr. Carroll, a psychiatrist, and your terrorist therapist. Well, how could I not uh pick this as the topic for this week's uh terrorist therapist show? When in fact November thirteenth was the sixth anniversary of the Paris attacks. There these attacks were like their 9/11, And um Just like our 9-11 taught us that uh, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Same thing goes for the Paris attacks, but not necessarily just for Paris. Really, (laughs) it's for all Western countries, of course, including the United States. Now, I'm going to talk to you today. I'm going to take us back in time, but not just for the sake of, you know, uh, old time's sake, um, you know, talking about some of the things that happened and what that attack was like, although I am going to talk about that to, to some degree. Um, but it is also to make the point that there are numerous things that happened, why that happened at that time, that are alike things that are happening in the United States today. I mean, I have talked in previous podcasts about why we are more at risk today than we were before 911 but now I'm going to be talking about the ones that specifically relate or are similar to things that were happening in Paris and why the terrorists attacked at that time now this um ISIS has taken responsibility for the Paris attacks so there's not any question and the people involved have pledged their loyalty to ISIS and and so on there's no question as to who was behind it so now the question is, can the Paris attacks happen here? And the answer is, we oui, we oui. <laughs> Oh, God, that's so tacky, <laughs> but I couldn't resist. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> there are definitely reasons why it could happen here that, as I was saying, relate to similarities in Paris. Now, first of all, um, the people who uh, were the terrorists of that attack stated that they were angry at um, Paris, the the killings of Muslims in the Middle East by the French. And in particular, they blamed the French president and so on for participating in attacks in the Middle East uh, on Muslims. And of course, needless to say, um, the United States has uh, participated in attacks in the Middle East, notably in Afghanistan. And of course, um, with our surrender, our humiliating, um, horrible surrender in Afghanistan, that has emboldened terrorists of all uh, stripes, Uh, you know, ISIS and Al Qaeda and the Taliban. Now, another similarity is that in France um, uh, in November 2015, at the time of their attack, they were on high alert, France was on high alert because of previous terror attacks that had happened in that year in particular. And we are um, not exactly on high alert, but as many of you probably know, there was a bulletin uh, just released by the uh, Department of Homeland Security an updated National Terrorism Advisory System bulletin that talks about the heightened threat environment in the United States that we are now in. And I'll get to that at the end of today's show. Um, Another similarity is that the terrorists involved who attacked Paris um, were able to make them to slip in one, because most of them came from uh, Belgium or France, so they you know, uh, were there or in the environment nearby, but also because, even though in some of them were on terrorist watch lists, but they were able to hide amongst the many uh, migrants crossing the borders into France and many of them were um returning from the middle east at that time and so they slipped in you know yes there were some of them were on police uh watch lists and so on but they managed to hide amongst these other people um migrants from the middle east well of course what do we have here uh today in america there are there are migrants from coming across the southern border and there are afghans not all of whom are friendly coming in planes um <laughs> uh, brought over not 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 um crossing illegally or whatever but brought over by american planes and yes of course i have to say that um that some of them were friendly and helpful to our troops in afghanistan and they deserved to be rescued but there was certainly no question that there were jihadists amongst them, hiding amongst them, just like what happened in Paris. Okay, now um, I, I should mention that I lived in Paris for um, three years, and um, and I've been back to Paris fairly recently, um, so I know what I'm talking about. Uh, in fact, when I went back to Paris in 2018, um, because my book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, oh my, won the um won the, the Paris Book Festival Award, so I was there, and I have seen the change in France and in paris um so it's with that background that I'm able to talk about the Paris attacks you know in more depth, so let me just first first the general outline of what happened um there were a series of coordinated terrorist attacks. Three main parts of Paris um, were attacked on November 13th, a Friday night, um, starting starting in the evening, um, starting with the national stadium, the Stade de France, where there was a football match going on. <clears throat> between France and Germany. And three suicide bombers struck outside the Stade de France. They had planned to go inside, but for various reasons, they weren't allowed in. So they um, unleashed, you know, detonated their vests outside. And what happened was um, the three terrorists were killed and one um, passed then by. Um, then there was another group of terrorists, three terrorists, who, um, so there were nine terrorists altogether, and then there was a man called the 10th man who we're gonna talk about in a little more detail uh, in the next segment. And um, so this next group attacked the area in Paris where there were lots of crowded cafes and restaurants. And they were, one of them blew himself up and unleashed a suicide vest and the others were shooting people at these cafes. Then, of course, the most uh, well-known part of this attack was the third group who carried out a mass shooting and took hostages at a concert at the Boddick Theater. It was a um, concert, a rock concert, where there were 1,500 people. And some of those were um, were taken as hostages. So they were shot. And then some of the um, terrorists uh, blew themselves up with suicide vests and so on. And ultimately, the police raided the theater and saved the hostages. But in this whole um, attack, in these three attacks, essentially, um, there were 130 people who were killed. And not, this included 90 at the Baddick and there were hundreds of people who were injured. You know, some um, assessments say 400 and some odd people, others say 600 and some odd people, hundreds. And um, of the um, – oh, there's so much to talk about. It's hard to uh, – um, now, th- these attacks had been planned in Syria. And they were organized by a terrorist cell based in Belgium, based in a in a city called Molenbeek, which is outside of Brussels. And I went to medical school in Belgium and lived in Belgium for three years, approximately. And um, so I am very well familiar familiar with Molenbeek, actually, um, which is a very you know shady, um, poor part of um part of Belgium, and where terrorism, even since twenty fifteen you know before and after twenty fifteen that is a hot spot today even that is the hot spot in um Europe for terrorists um, so what happened was um many of the people, even though most of the people who were the terrorists, these nine terrorists or ten really um including the tenth man. Um They were born in France or Belgium. There were some who were born outside, but um many of them had had gone to the Middle East and had become radicalized and returned to europe um amongst the migrants and refugees from syria so um so uh I actually when I went to uh, Paris in twenty eighteen I purposely made an effort and managed to get into the, um, the, um, Lawn. I wanted to, it turned out it was, it's a whole other story that I won't go into because it's too long, but the, the performance was sold out and um, I had to go through a whole rigmarole, uh, to manage to get in. And I did it because I wanted to feel what it would have felt like to be sitting in, the theater when these terrorists attacked and um it was a, and it it was just a chilling experience because the Bodeglon is a beautiful theater and there are seats um on the ground floor and then there are also uh balconies and during this attack some of the people were killed who were in the balconies not just the, they they were killed you know in the on the ground floor but they were also killed in the balconies and those people when they died they fell over the balconies and landed on the people on the ground floor i mean it was it was just a, a, a tra- tragic tragic event i mean all of it was tragic but um and the the theater is relatively small and so the music is loud and the, you're sitting really literally rubbing shoulders with the person next to you. It's it, The seats are tiny. And the theater is super dark. So when the terrorists came into the theater, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Because, you know, and that's what they did. But, you know, shot, 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 shot you know, just bang, bang, bang. And um, that's how they were able to kill so many people. And, um and then of course took the hostages and they were trying to um trying to get the press trying to negotiate with the president anyhow it was um it was just a whole devastating event so now in the next segment i'm going to talk to you a little bit about so oh at this time this um this period of time right now is not only the 6th uh, anniversary of the November 2015 Paris attacks it is also a time when in paris the trial is going on of the people who were who are still alive who were involved in the um attacks now um i'm going to talk to you in the next segment about particularly about some of the people who were the attackers and about the one who is um, still alive and who was directly involved? This is the tenth man. He wasn't. He wasn't. Uh, you know. In he. Well, I'll tell you who he was when we come back. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show, where we're talking today about the Paris attacks, where the canary in the coal mine, and we'd better listen. Well, we're talking about the Friday, the 13th of November, 2015, those attacks in Paris that took place at the uh, places that I was just talking to you about. And the trial is going on. And the main, um, the best well-known person in the trial is a man named Salah Abdeslam, Abdeslam and um he was trying to be quiet you know he kept quiet uh he he was arrested he actually he was a man who uh managed to survive there were only two people who managed to survive um the attacks of november 13th who were terrorists um the other person was not as directly involved so he's been sort of considered the main person who was directly involved and I'll tell you how he was directly involved. Um, he so he but he kept quiet. He he ran away. He escaped right after the attack in Paris. He escaped to Belgium, and then he you know there was this big manhunt, and he was eventually captured. And so um, and then he was um, he was tried in Belgium, and then he was also uh, transferred to um, to Paris so that he could stand trial there. And when he did talk at the trial in Paris, the trial is still going on. It's going to be going on for months. And when he did talk in Paris, he identified himself as a soldier of the Islamic State. So there, you know, he's not trying to say he's not guilty. There's no way that any of them really could say that he's not, that they're not guilty, but they are on trial. Now, um, Salah Abdesalam was um, was um, born in Brussels, and um, as I said, he's the only surviving member of the group directly involved. Um, he's, his involvement was that he provided logistical support for these nine people who were you know detonating their vests and shooting people in the Paris attack. So he did things like drive people to their target locations and he had um and and basically setting things up, reserving hotel rooms and so on. And um he and there is he there is also is also said that he had some involvement in the manufacture of the explosives. Now, he actually um all the other people who were involved in the attacks either killed themselves, you know, with their vests and so on, or they were killed by the French and Belgian police officers. Um, p- Belgian p- police officers, you know, uh, captured uh, some of the people in Belgium after after they escaped from Paris. Or actually, one of them was still in Belgium. Um, he was the one who went to uh, who went to Syria. I will tell you about him. Now, um uh, 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 ab <laughs> let me call him Salah. <laughs> no. Abdesala Abdesalaam uh was born in Brussels, as I said. His parents were immigrants. They um they came from Morocco and um uh, they were they came from Morocco they had gotten french nationality when they were in algeria um and then they moved to to belgium and this area of belgium molenbeek uh which is an area where lots of uh migrants from um from countries that uh you know uh terrorist where there are a lot of terrorists um and they so they congregate in this in this area and it's kind of like people joining gangs, Um, you know, they influence each other. And and many of them started off with sort of uh, nondescript or ordinary childhood. Some of them, they weren't all poor. Um, and But they were influenced by each other, and they developed an anger towards society. So, for example, um, and the the person who Abdul Salam became best friends with in childhood was the man who was the the mastermind of the Paris attacks. And his name was Abdelhamid Abu Abuad. You know, no matter how many times I practice saying these names before I go get on to tell you about them, I I that's not my uh, I don't have a talent for it. Abuad. <laughs> Uh, Abdelhamid, let's go with that. Um, so they were best friends and, and um they, you know, had normal child well, not not normal childhoods, but they didn't start off as terrorists, let's put it that like that. But they did, like for example, Abdesalam, Abdesalam was a mechanic. Um, and he he went to school, he liked football, he liked motorbikes, he was a mechanic. But then he started to get in to become partners with Abdelhamid in crime. And this first, it was petty crime. They went from petty crime to Paris and they'd stayed friends and, um, Abu Oud went to, went to Syria and became radicalized and came back to Belgium and got, uh, Abdesalam, uh, Abdesalam, <laughs> involved in terrorism uh involved in this whole plot to um to attack paris and they they um at the time of the of the attack so they um abdel salam and his brother worked as a in a cafe in in paris in Molenbeek. um they they um you know they were they were having a um I a, a, a relative, I won't say normal life but I'll say a relatively ordinary life and uh they, they were became he became uh, a became manager of a bar named Le Beguin in Molenbeek. and uh his brother his brother owned it he was the manager and then uh, the bar was closed. See, this is so interesting because there's always something that, you know, gets people. I mean, here, he was con- convicted of lots of petty crimes with the man who became the mastermind of the Paris attack. So, you know, during these, I mean, you, you can see a whole, psychologically, you can see a whole connection here. There was this um, antisocial environment, you know, or antisocial um, attitude that got him involved in petty crimes in the first place, and you know in, in Belgium, i mean it, it just like in many other places, um, even though they had an an ordinary life and they weren 't necessarily poor um, or starving in any case, um, they saw around them they, they felt marginalized and they saw around them in Belgium people who were living a more uh, comfortable lifestyle and so um, this, you know, this is how the petty crimes began, and then, and then, this is where I was going, um, the bar, you know, and and a lot of the people who were involved in the Paris attacks, one way or another, actually were friends who met at this bar. And, um, and so then, um, at some point, right before the attacks, not long before the attacks, the authorities closed the bar. Because they discovered that drugs were being sold there, used and sold there, and so uh, the brother sold the bar about six weeks before the Paris attacks. So now, you know, society now they really were angry, right? Um, now they're they're they were doing okay, you know, at this bar. They had their friends. They were managing. They were making a decent living. And then what did what happened? These big bad people in the society uh, in Belgium, you know, the authorities um, closed their shop, closed their bar. So um, so now <laughs> there are so many interesting things about his life. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things he did, Abdesalam used the website booking.com to rent rooms for the terrorists who went to Paris, um, and he also helped by renting cars, he rented flats, he rented the hotel rooms, as I said, and um, so he was the one. He was the logistics man. He wasn't. He didn't. Although, although it's interesting because one of the people who was an associate of his testified that he heard him claiming that he had shot people in Paris. Now, whether he did or not, probably at the trial going on now, he's not going to say that, you know, so did he, or was he just bragging because he, you know, didn't want to be the one that, um, you know, the one that didn't shoot people or kill people. Um, And uh, there's also sort of a mystery about a discarded suicide belt that was found to have sweat on it, that matched the the DNA of the sweat on the belt matched the DNA of Salaam. um now here's a here's a, another interesting factoid um there were women there are fans he has fans you know he this is remember this happened in 2015 he was uh, caught in 2016 and so he's been in jail whether it's the Belgian jail or the French jail you know for several years and um he receives um incessant mail notably from French and Belgian women who profess their love to him and tell them that they tell him that they want to bear his child so it's just like in America <laughs> you know just like pretty much in lots of countries um where you know these these bad guys these bad boys um who are are attractive to certain kinds of women women who have had problems with their father that's a whole other story but anyhow anyhow just like um just like cruz um nicholas cruz you know in florida the uh, valentine's day killer school shooter uh he has had for years and years he's had uh, women, you know, professing their love and, and wanting to marry him and, and all this kind of stuff. And we've had other, you know, there have been other, uh, lots of other, uh, famous criminals, killers who have had the same, gotten the same reaction. And when, um, Salah, Abdus Salam went to Paris, the Paris prison, prison, when he was sent to Paris, um, the prisoners in Paris cheered for him. Him. and when the when they captured him in Belgium the people in the neighborhood all came out and they were throwing things at the police they were really angry that they were capturing him you know because they identify with him and they didn't think that he they thought what he did was great well all right now let me um i mean there's there's so much so much to tell you <laughs> um but let me um Let me um, end this segment now, and when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about the current state of Paris, which, as I said, I had a chance to see firsthand when I went to Paris in 2018, and it has only gotten worse, you know, news that we've heard uh, from Paris, the situation has only gotten worse, and um, I'm going to tell you more about what it is and how we need to, to look at this and um, ask how much of this is now going to happen in America. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show, where we're talking about Paris attacks were the canary in the coal mine, and we'd better listen talking about uh, this because of the uh, sixth anniversary of the Paris attacks, the November 13th Paris attacks um, of 2015. And I just want to, um, (laughs) I know I was a little off, but I think I was a little off, but I just want to correct. Uh, I was talking about the two main figures in these Paris attacks, Salah Abdeslam, and um, the mastermind, uh, his his childhood friend, partners in pity crime, from pity crime to Paris attacks, uh, Abdelhamid Abuud. That was pretty close to what I was saying before. <laughs> well, anyway, what's more important is the content here. Um, okay, so... Um, Next, now I want to talk to you about what is going on in Paris today in terms – and you will see for yourself uh, the similarities to what is happening or what is about to happen, what is increasingly happening in the United States. So now um, the Daily Mail, the, the United Kingdom's Daily Mail, uh, reported just recently that two-thirds of French people think white European Christian populations are being threatened with extinction by immigration from Muslim and African countries. And they said that such a scenario will definitely or probably play out. Now, um, this poll was conducted to test the belief in the idea of what's called in French, um, in fact, it was it was It was um, a Frenchman, a French author, uh, originally wrote about this. It's called Le Grand Grand Remplacement, the the Great Replacement. And um, it is actually, this this concept, political, sociological, political concept, is currently being touted by a man named Eric Zemmour. And he is... um, He is, you know, trying to, um, become, uh, unseat Macron in next year's election. And this is this, the idea of this, um, is that the political elites are bringing massive numbers of, of immigrants, um, into places, Western civilization where there are free societies in order to subvert them. To create a population that is more amenable to authoritarianism and more easily controlled. You know, like what's happening here with the uh, vaccine mandates and the lockdowns and so on. Now, if you talk about this, you are, if you say this, like I am risking being, you know, called uh, an Islamophobe, a racist, uh, a hate monger, a conspiracy theorist. You know, actually, I looked this up on um <laughs> you never can trust wikipedia and i wanted to to read more about it and see if i could explain it you know in a in, uh, in a simpler way so what does it say when you look up great replacement in wikipedia it says great replacement french grand remplacement grand also known as replacement theory is a white nationalist conspiracy theory which states that with the complicity or cooperation of replacist elites, the white French population, as well as white European populations at large, is being demographically and culturally replaced with non-European peoples, specifically Arab, Berber, Berber, Turkish, and sub-Saharan Muslim populations through mass migration, demographic growth, and a European drop in the birth rate. Now, you can call this a, a um, conspiracy theory, but you can also look it up, look up the uh, the demographics. And this is not made up. This is happening. Now, this originally uh, was po- made popular by a French author named Renaud Camus. He wrote a book in 2011 called Le Grand Remplacement. And it specifically associated the presence of Muslims in France with this potential danger and destruction of French culture and civilization. Well, let me, um, you know, and and of course, the the part, I mean, this is, that is happening. (laughs) Um, And, but the, I guess the conspiracy theory, the part that is mainly thought to be conspiracy theory is the fact that, uh, not that this isn't true, you know, demographically and so on, but that um, it's, it's it's being done intentionally by globalists, by global and liberal elites who purposely want this to happen. Well, you know, I, I'm not making this up, and people who and and this author just isn't making this up. Um, I mean, we are. It it has been happening, and as I was trying to say. In, um, and, and so, you know, this man, this politician, Eric Zemmour, or Eric Zemmour, <laughs> uh, who is, who is, uh, some might be, consider him a right-wing pundit. Um, he is, you know, is going to have a lot, he already has a lot of people who are supporting him because people who are native French people, um, are, have been getting increasingly upset about what this mass immigration, it's not, it's not about tolerance and it's not really about Islamophobia. It's what's been happening to France. And, um, there are more, there, there is, there's a, um, a sense that the French, because there are so many people who are, and, and so many, uh, radical or so many, now, again, this is not about, I am not, I always have to say this, uh, most, not all terrorists are Muslims, and certainly not all Muslims are terrorists, okay, but the people who are, invad- have been invading France and also the UK, and you have to wonder why, the, and Germany for that matter, and um you know, those are the main European countries that have opened their doors uh, to, to migrants and to people coming. I mean, this is, what hap- this is how the Paris attacks happened. The people came back from being ra- – going. The, the people went to Syria and, and the Middle East um, because they wanted to become radicalized. They became radicalized. They came back to Europe, and they radicalized other people, and that's how the, the attacks happened in Paris, as I was uh, explaining. And, of course, it wasn't just these two, you know, the two best friends that I was talking about. There were others, uh, and mainly the people or a lot of the people who met together in this cafe. You know, they would hatching, hatching these plans. So that's how it spreads. And so um, now there's a Roman Catholic archbishop, the Roman Catholic archbishop of Turkey uh, named Giuseppe Bernardini. Uh, has said this, that the the dominion has already begun. Um, He is talking, he said that he had a conversation with a Muslim leader who said to him, quote, thanks to your democratic laws, we will invade you. Thanks to our religious laws, we will dominate you. Now, that is kind of the point. The French authorities are afraid now of the huge, Muslim population, you know, the French people are the minority, and a lot of the a lot of the obviously not all Muslims in France or anyplace else are terrorists, but there are a lot of Muslims in radicalized, let's put it that way. There are a lot of radicalized Muslims in in France who have been doing attacks. You know, there are attacks happening all the time. We just don't hear about it in uh, American mainstream media but there are churches that are attacked there are people women who are being raped i mean i i i am aware of all of these things um and and so it, it is becoming you know the french people are are becoming more and more frightened po- police in france are being killed um and because um and so so in france many imams in france have said the same thing as what i was talking about this archbishop in turkey i don't know why he was in, interviewed by the uh by the uk daily mail but he, he was and uh but it's the same thing actually the imams in in france are saying the same thing now there's this french politician named marion marichal and um she is saying that France's first major challenge is the most vital, and she's talking about Le Grand Remplacement, uh, this the, this demographic countdown, which already makes us realize the possibility of become a, becoming a minority on the land of our ancestors. That's what she talks about. And um, she says, after 40 years of mass migration, uh, Islamic lobbies and political correctness, that um, France is losing its ability to be French and to, you know, uh, enact its laws. And this is the, this is the problem. Um, France has welcomed a large and growing population of people, among whom are many who have absolute contempt for French law and no intention of obeying it, and who believe that they have a responsibility before Allah to replace that French law with Islamic law as soon as it's possible to do so. I mean, that is the problem. It's not, it's, it's that in admitting all, just opening the doors to everybody, just like we did to the Afghans, in not having any, literally not having any boundaries, not vetting people, just letting everybody come in, they're, they're not being careful to not let in the jihadists. And that's exactly what is happening in America. So, um, so, you know that that is the problem. Um, I mean, so for if you were at the beginning of the show, if you were thinking to yourself, huh, what happened in Paris in 2015 would never happen here," think again. Now, especially, I'm going to close with this this um, bulletin from the Homeland. Security, um, from Homeland Security, this National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin, said that there is currently in America a, quote, heightened threat environment. Um, They talk about domestic violent extremists. Unfortunately, you know, they even admit in this, um, where where is it? They admit that they have prioritized. I mean, they are actually in the in the section saying um, that says how are how we are responding. They admit in this bulletin DHS Department of Homeland Security has prioritized combating domestic violent extremist threats within its Homeland Security grant program. In other words, um, they are they are using. Uh, they're prioritizing in using counterterrorism money to the, to, um, to pay attention to, to worry about, to co- count, to, to counteract, um uh, domestic terrorists. And I, I, in a previous, um, podcast, I talked about how they were doing that. They were considering domestic terrorists the parents, uh, who opposed critical race theory and the, um, pornographic sex that were being that was being taught in school. And so um so they talk in this bulletin, they talk about um how the the ongoing foreign terrorists they t- they talk about foreign terrorist organizations uh and domestic terrorists are being inspired to follow to, to well, I mean they're they're talking about how the domestic terrorists, um, and are inspired by the ongoing pandemic because of the perceived government overreach in implementation of public health safety measures. That's one of the things that are getting the domestic terrorists upset, they say. And then, of course, um, uh, foreign terrorist organizations, uh, and the domestic terrorists continue to attempt to inspire potential followers to conduct attacks in the United States, including by exploiting recent events, exploiting recent events in Afghanistan, exploiting it. In other words, it's not that what happened in Afghanistan was bad or not that the American government should be stand responsible for all of that, but the terrorists would want to be terrorists are exploiting that. I mean, excuse me, I mean, the, the what happened in Afghanistan has emboldened terrorists. So anyhow, uh, they're saying they're not aware of an imminent and credible threat to a specific location in the United States. However, as you may well remember, and in my previous podcast, I talk about the threat that there was in Virginia. So there was a threat to a specific place. I mean, it is, it is really um, – one does have to, unfortunately – Look at the bulletins from the Department of Homeland Security with a i don't want to say cynical, maybe that's me, but with a um a critical eye i mean critical in terms of trying to see what part is real and what part is political i mean yes, of course, there is a threat to america um I'm not questioning that um, in fact, it might really be even stronger than they're putting in this bulletin, but um <laughs> But the way that it's being described and the fact that most of the money for counterterrorism is being directed at domestic terrorists who are being called parents (laughs) who don't like what's being taught in school, amongst others, um, is very frightening. Anyhow, uh, I know that was a lot. I I tried to sort of um, summarize each of these, the aspects of this uh obviously i invite you to um to do further research and look it up yourself um but i gave you a taste of what's going on here and how you know we can't just look at paris and say um tom p too bad say <laughs> tragique um we have to think of it as as the future the potential future of america if we don't wake up well, thank you for listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your terrorist therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient... We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk archives for more insights.